1: United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com/slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's com slash sacred text. Chapter 29, The Dream. It comes down to this, said Hermione, rubbing her forehead. Either Mr. Crouch attacked Victor, or somebody else attacked both of them when Victor wasn't looking. It must have been Crouch, said Ron at once. That's why he was gone when Harry and Dumbledore got there. He'd done a runner. I don't think so, said Harry, shaking his head. I'm old hand. And I'm Matt Potts. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Matt, just one announcement today, which is that we have our Harry Potter pilgrimage at the very end of August, beginning of September, right before the school year starts for you teachers out there. We're going to Yorkshire, and the thing I'm most excited about, other obviously than traveling with your wonderful, brilliant wife, who's one of my best friends, Colette is that there's going to be a hike where we hike all day, and then we get to take a steam train all the way back like the Hogwarts Express, and I am absurdly excited about that. Also, I just got back from a Harry Potter pilgrimage, and it's just, like, so special. I just always learn something else about the books and about myself, and I'm just, I'm really excited to do this Harry Potter pilgrimage up in the north of England. So to find out more, go to readingandwalkingwith.com, and we really hope to see you there. And Matt, we're actually continuing our theme of silence from last week because ironically, we had so much we wanted to say on the topic. (laughs) So what is your story?
0: So recently, I took a trip to Iceland. I I traveled with a bunch of students from Harvard, and we did kind of a pilgrimage there. It was like a climate pilgrimage to visit a receding glacier and to just kind of be part of the natural landscape of Iceland. And it's a trip I've been looking forward to because it's beautiful and really stunning with the landscape, but also it's so quiet. I leave Cambridge, Massachusetts, where there's always traffic outside my window at any hour of the night, and there's a giant science research building behind my house. And so there's always like big fans running. There's there's just constant noise and landing in Iceland and being out in the landscape where they're, they're not just human machines for, you know, a mile around you. It's so quiet. And I was really looking forward to that silence. And it was bitterly cold there, which was a kind of a drag. I mean, maybe you expect it in Iceland, but even the Icelanders were saying this is the coldest it's ever been it, <laughs> that we can remember, right? So it was super, super cold. But one of the things about the cold is that it made everything really clear like the there wasn't actually the air temperature wasn't allowing for condensate in the the atmosphere so it was super cold and that made the northern lights very visible so most of the nights we were there we got to look at the northern lights and the first night I was out there looking at the northern lights it was a really amazing and sort of transcendent experience I was just looking up at the lights and I noticed like What I thought was this really quiet place was not quiet at all because I could hear wind in the trees and I could hear just the sound of the landscape around me everywhere all at once. (laughs) And I realized that like, oh, what I was perceiving as silence, as quiet was actually still, there was still noise. There was still sound happening around me. It's just sound that I had not been paying attention to. When I'm here in Cambridge and when I'm in the city, like, there are sounds that kind of intrude upon you. They, like, make themselves known to you. But there, the sounds kind of recede. And unless something grabs your attention, like the Northern Lights, and actually calls you to attend to what's around you, you don't hear how loud the silence is, right? Because really there's no time when we don't have any sound, like anybody who's practiced a lot of meditation, like even if you're in a very quiet place, when you're meditating, you can sometimes hear your own heartbeat or the blood traveling through the vessels in your ears. Like our bodies are machines that make sound. Silence is actually a question not of whether there's sound or not. It's a question of what you're attending to, what you're paying attention to. And so like, that's what I was thinking about as I was looking up at the lights, which is like, what's important about this is not that it's a silent place. Iceland is not a silent place. In the sense of not having any noise, it's a place that makes me pay attention to the life that's around me in a different way. It's silence is a calling of attention to what's always already there. And I could sort of feel the lights speaking to me, even in their silence in the sky, because it was actually more about attention.
1: Matt, I'm so glad that you got to go on that pilgrimage. I was at your house when you came home from it, and you were just a... God, I can't think of another word right now, but you were glowing from your experience of the Northern Lights. Like, it was clearly just like such a touching experience for you. And gosh, I love you enough that my first feeling wasn't even jealousy. I was just happy for you. Whoa. I know. This is my second (laughs) feeling. (laughs) But I love that point, right? Like, when I'm not speaking or, you know, allowing a conversation to hold silence, what's loud are my thoughts yeah. or observing the other person, right? It's not like my brain stops working.
0: Right. Vanessa, well, it's time to recap our chapter and I suggest we both pay attention. Let the chapter speak to us rather than speaking.
1: Oh my God. How about that? <laughs> so Should we everyone just take 30, 30, seconds, 30 of seconds of silence from each of us? Count me in.
0: Okay. Three, two, one.
1: So there is chaos in the Owlery. They are sending an owl to Sirius. Sirius is going to send an owl back saying, oh my god, Harry, don't you dare wander off alone. Fred and George are sending an owl, maybe blackmailing someone we don't really know. Um, Harry, Ron, and Hermione start practicing for the third task. Harry is practicing by hexing Ron and then Harry has a dream in Trelawney's class that Voldemort is going to want to kill him, so he runs to tell Dumbledore and he guesses the password and moody can tell that harry is there
0: this is a tricky chapter for 30 second recaps i agree because there's a lot of conversation and exposition and there are a couple of like important conversational things but they're kind of hiding in the chapter and so i think you did a great job i don't anticipate that i will but well, i'm ready to try
1: we'll speak through the silence matthew on your mark get set go
0: so Harry, Ron, and Hermione are trying to figure out what happened, and they don't really know what happened, although they kind of figured out they just know who it is, and then they talk to Moody about it, and Moody's like, what you need to worry about is getting Harry ready for this competition, so get Harry ready for this competition, Ron and Hermione. So Ron and Hermione do, and then uh, there's some stunning that goes on, and oh, I forgot, they, f- may- they meet Fred and George in the Owlery, and they're up to something, and they also get a letter from Snape, uh, not Snape, from Sirius, and then they go to Dumbledore's office, and uh, or he has a dream, and the dream is Nagini, and and there's crucio a uh, Wormtail, and somebody dies, and then they go to Dumbledore's office, and and. Uh, Uh, What's his name? Is there Fudge and and Moody Season? I went two seconds over,
1: so I think I'm disqualified. So strong. I was like, Is this a new Matt? Have the Northern Lights changed him?
0: It's not, it's the same, it's the same Matt. So, Vanessa, one of the things that's interesting about this chapter and reading it through the theme of silence is. So much of what I was thinking about my story about sounds has to do with attention, what you're paying attention to. And many of the characters in this chapter are paying really close attention. They want information, right? Like this disturbing scene just happened where Crumb has been attacked and Crouch looked disheveled and distressed and, and weakened and vulnerable. And then he disappears and no one really knows what's going on. And... It's almost like the situation is being silent. Like the world is not speaking to them and not giving them the information they want. And what they end up doing is filling in that speech a lot of folks in this chapter are trying to give reasons where they don't have good evidence for reasons so with the crouch situation harry ron and hermione are trying to figure out okay we don't know what happened and no one's here to tell us the situation is silent so let's conjure up some reasons right or you know later on and we'll talk about this fred and george they are doing something mysterious and so they're trying to figure out what's going on and later on from that like moody and dumbledore and Cornelius fudge are having a conversation and harry's trying to figure out what's going on there What's interesting is is like in face of silence, when the world is not speaking to us or when we're not getting the information we want, often it's hard to sit with that lack, with that silence, and instead we try to, to populate the world with some form of information because that knowledge is comforting to us.
1: Yeah. And sometimes we do a good job, I think is the other thing, right? Like yeah. sometimes even in that silence, we can kind of know each other. Right? So the scene is, they're all in the alley. It's really early in the morning. Harry, Ron, and Hermione were up late in the night trying to figure out what happened with Crumb and Crouch. And then they woke up early to go send an owl to Sirius because they promised Sirius that they would keep him updated on everything. And while they're up in the alley at the butt crack of dawn, Fred and George also go to the Allery at the same butt crack time. And They're all like, hi, 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 hi. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? Nothing. And they all kind of agree to not ask each other, right? They're like, I'm not going to ask you what you're up to if you don't ask us what we're up to. But Ron, when the twins leave, Ron is like, they're probably doing something to raise money for the joke shop. They only have one year left of school. They want to raise the startup capital for the joke shop. But he, he doesn't know the specifics, right? We know the specifics that the twins are sending this letter to Ludo Bagman because Ludo Bagman has stiffed them on this bet that they made around the World Cup. But he does have like the gist of it, whereas Fred and George really have no idea what Ron is up to. And so I just think that we see that sometimes, right, like sometimes you can see a lot in a silence and sometimes it can be really opaque and you can not know that your brother is, like, part of something that's gonna cause mortal danger. And so I just think, right, like, sometimes silence is, like, completely fair and we don't need to talk, and other times I think it can be really dangerous.
0: Yeah, one of the interesting things about that scene is that, like, you're right, I mean, because Ron is paying attention here to what they're not saying, He's paying attention to the fact of their being silent. Like, he has some suspicions, which are not entirely wrong, which is like, they might be willing to break some laws, actually, right? Like, Hermione's like, they wouldn't do that, right? And Ron's like, man, they might do that, Like they, <laughs> right? And it's yeah. because he knows them well and because he's attending to what they're not saying that he has these concerns. It's a really interesting, like, counterexample to what happens earlier in the chapter when Ron, Harry, and Hermione are trying to figure out what exactly was going on with Crouch and what happened, why he disappeared, who attacked Crum? Because Harry says, you know, the, the one thing that Crouch said is that Voldemort's rising, Voldemort's getting stronger. And then the text says that Ron assumes a falsely confident voice. And he's like, you know, you said Crouch was not in his right mind, right? Like, so that we can't actually trust anything he's saying. This is actually like a forced silence. Like, the, a person is actually giving him information. There is information, which actually is reliable, and actually Harry is relying upon it, but Ron doesn't want to hear it because the truth it reveals would be too disturbing. And so what he needs to hear is he needs to silence it. He needs to like come up with a rationale for why it's not true. So it's like they're almost like exactly mirror image situations where Fred and George are not saying something, and he's paying attention to what they're not saying, and actually it gets him pretty close to what's going on with them, whereas Crouch is saying what's going on, but he doesn't want to hear that. And that leads him away from what's actually going on. And we can see like others in the ministry are doing the same thing. They do not want to hear, even though the evidence is there. And that leads them in the wrong direction rather than paying attention to what's actually being said.
1: I had a funny experience about this just last night. I was teaching for What Matters last night. And my beloved dog runs into my office and hides under my desk. And it turns out that we we had a mouse incident in the house last night mousetrap incident. Hmm. And as soon as I figured out what it was, because there was like chaos, you know, Peter was moving things in the other room. Like it was very chaotic. I felt like I had to explain what was gonna happen. And I, as I started to explain it, like half the class put their hands over their ears and essentially shouted me down. They're like, no, 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 I don't wanna know. And they know what happened, right? Like. I didn't need to finish the sentence. They knew exactly what happened. And yet there are times where you literally cover your ears and shout someone down even as you know what they're going to say because you don't want to hear the words. And that is like, that's an extreme version of what Ron is doing, right? Where he's like, -uh, no, Voldemort, no.
0: Yeah, that's right. Silence, please. Yeah, that's right.
1: But the other thing that's interesting to me, Matt, about this friend George situation is why they are being... Loud in the ways that they are, right? Like sending Bagman, sending a ministry official a like kind of threatening letter. Yeah. Rather than talking to their dad. They're choosing language in one place that confuses me and silence in another place that confuses me. Arthur knows about the bet. He was there. Arthur could do something. <laughs> like Arthur and Ludo are colleagues. So Arthur could, like, go up to Ludo and be like, hey, dude, it's weird that you owe my teenage son's money. Or, like, tell the boys, like, you got to let this go. Yeah. Maybe it's because the boys know that that's what Arthur would say. Again, there's just, like, this constant assuming of what other people are going to say, and so you choose silence rather than talking because you think you know what they're going to say. Yeah. But I'm just, like, I don't understand why they're not going to Arthur and being like, he owes us money. We're teenagers. Yeah.
0: I think you're right. I think what happens is they think what Arthur will ask is for Ludo to give back what Fred and George put in, not their winnings.
1: Got right? it. Yeah. And just
0: call it even. And they, they'd they like that, but what they want more is their winnings, right? And they yeah. don't think that Arthur will force Ludo to pay out yeah. the winnings, right? But it does mean, I mean, like you said, this bet was not a secret. The inappropriate thing already happened. And Ron and Arthur were privy to it. They knew it happened. Like, it, you know, I, I don't know why Fred and George in this situation can't say, like, Ludo stiffed us and we're just telling him to give us our money, right? Like, they don't need to say that they're blackmailing him or whatever, right? And honestly, if they wrote that, Ron would be like, yeah, you you should send that letter because he does owe you money, right? I think their secrecy here in the silence here is interesting. And maybe it has to do with just keeping it away from Mr. Weasley. because. They're afraid that Hermione or somebody else will let the cat out of the bag to people who will just call it even and not get them the money they want. Because what they really want, as Ron hears in their secrecy, even though they don't say it out loud, what they really want is the money to start their joke shop.
1: Yeah. And it also seems to some extent that in the Weasley household, at least amongst the culture that... Fred and George want to perpetuate, silence is equated with like coolness,
2: Hmm. right?
1: They're like, it's like, hey, Ron, be cool. Don't be Percy about this, right? Like don't ask questions, don't probe. And I do think that that is one of the ways that we keep people silent, right? Like we all get mad at the kid who says, oh, you forgot to give us homework, right? Like that's the extreme example of wishing someone who's like overly earnest and not quote unquote cool. We just want them to shut up. But I feel like we just do that to each other. We force one another into silence. We don't want people to speak up. Yeah. We think people who speak up are whiny or complaining or,
0: yeah.
1: and right, like there is such a thing as privacy and there's such a thing as like, that is actually yep. none of your concern. Please let me yep. handle that. But yeah, I think that there is a downside to cultural cachet around silence.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think this takes us back to sort of the the routine sort of demonization of Percy in these novels. And, like, Percy does some yeah. stuff, obviously, that I'm not really happy about. Especially when he seems to me, you know, disloyal to the Weasleys and makes some bad decisions. And we'll talk about that later when we get to it. But there is something about, like, the you know, the opposite of silence is transparency, right? Like, Percy's following the rules, what it facilitates is, like a level of transparency that we should hope for in our systems, right? He's working in the Ministry of Magic. He wants everything out in the open. He actually wants this stuff out. The reason being a Percy is not cool is because it disallows people like Ludo Bagman from making bets with teenagers, <laughs> right?
1: Like <laughs> right.
0: right, Like that's why that's why it's not cool for Fred and George, but actually systemically, we want our systems to not be silent. We want our systems to be open and transparent and for us to be able to get the information we want from those systems. And it's interesting that Percy represents that. It's not just Fred and George. I think the novels portray him as lame for being this interested in transparency and, like, rule following. And he does it to a fault, perhaps. But there's also this sense of, like, here's a situation where, like, transparency's good. Percy wouldn't like it if he knew that Ludo Bagman was doing this. And Ludo Bagman shouldn't have done it, right? <laughs> so, right. So, like, that's not... It's not all bad And there. Fred and George are portraying him as uncool and on the wrong side of things when, actually, you know, you can see this is the virtue of percy's obsessions
1: a lot can happen in three years like a chat bot may be your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states learn more at uh1.com
0: this week's episode of harry potter and the sacred text is brought to you by me undies Deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of me undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody, And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh-so-comfy, making it ideal for all-day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at meundies.com slash H-P-S-T. That's meundies.com slash H-P-S-T for 20% off plus free shipping. Me Undies, comfort from the outside in.
1: This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimald Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin, it's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started.
0: I mean, I think that this just kind of leads us to the idea of like systemic silence, like when systems don't respond to us, when structures of power that we need to engage with, when they don't respond to us, how we deal with them. And, you know, as we were talking through our show notes, you had an, an example of this that you noticed in the chapter that I thought you could share with us now.
1: Yeah, I think that there's this great moment with the gargoyle. Harry really wants to tell Dumbledore about his dream. And so he runs to Dumbledore's office and he doesn't know the new password. And so he starts shouting passwords at the gargoyle. And the gargoyle won't let Harry into Dumbledore's office. But then Harry figures out, quote unquote, the right password and the gargoyle lets Harry in. I feel like this is me on the phone with my health insurance company, right? Or any sort of system that feels like it was created to do one thing and is now accidentally doing another. Like, it shouldn't be this hard to get to the principal's office, right? Like, Harry should have access to Dumbledore. He is the boy who lived. He is being hunted by Voldemort. Dumbledore knows all of that. I know that the Gargoyle was set up to protect Dumbledore, to create privacy for him, to allow this like very busy man some silence, actually. But instead, like the Gargoyle's silence is just oppressive. Yeah. And it, it just feels like there have been moments like this in my life where I'm like, we both know... You can help me and you are choosing this like statuesque thing, this like gargoyle-like position because I don't know the password, right? Like whatever it is. I'm not rich enough to know the password. I'm not willing to be threatening enough, right? Like whatever it is. And I don't know. I wish that like the gargoyle could like do some sort of emotional test yeah, where it's like, a password or a student in severe emotional distress.
0: Yeah. I, like, I feel like I understand Dumbledore's busy and probably a lot of people want to talk to him a lot of the time, but get a receptionist. Like, have someone who can respond. Yes. Like, you don't need a, a stone gargoyle that, like, unless you have been privileged with the secret password, it will not let you. Like, Harry could be, like, he could be wounded or, like, harmed or something and he wouldn't be able to do anything because the gargoyle doesn't care. But I think you're right. I mean, it, it, that's what makes it a good yeah. emblem or representation of how these, how systems often work, which is power and maybe even with decent intentions like Dumbledore may have to protect privacy or to like to make sure that he has time to do the other work he needs to do, sets up a system which is just not answerable or accountable to the people who might need those powers to respond to them. And so this is a great example of it, right? That the gargoyle doesn't care. And it's only because Harry hacks it basically. Harry just guesses and comes upon the right candy that is the correct password to open up. That he that he gets in, and if he, yeah, if he doesn't, then he's just stuck out there shouting at a stone-faced gargoyle.
1: Yeah, I mean, I even just love your point about a receptionist, right? Because having something that can talk back and think for itself doesn't even mean that Harry would necessarily get what he wants, but he would get care, right? Like a receptionist would be like, "Let's walk you to the hospital wing," right? Like something. Yeah, just sometimes silence can just feel like indifference.
0: Yeah, that's right. The, the receptionist wouldn't necessarily let Harry in, but would be, give some kind of response. And again, right. like sometimes receptionists are effectively stone-faced gargoyles, right? <laughs>
1: they, Usually because yeah. they're told to be.
0: Because they're told to be right. Because they're told to be right. not. Be, yeah. So I'm not saying that that solves all these problems, but it, right. you can see how the how systems just naturally, not naturally, like almost can't help but put up barriers. To the people they're meant to serve, right? So I think there's another, there's an interesting counter example here, too, in the same way that kind of Ron in one situation was paying attention to silence and another situation was silencing what he should have been paying attention to. Here like Harry is shouting at the gargoyle, mm-hmm. which is silent before him, because he, he needs to get in. And then he runs up to Dumbledore's office with some urgency, and when he gets there, he becomes silent. Mm-hmm. Because within the office, Cornelius and Moody and Dumbledore are having some kind of conversation, about about Bertha Jorkins, about something that's going on, about the situation that he and Ron and Hermione were trying to figure out at the beginning of the chapter with respect to Crum and Crouch. And here, Harry gets quiet, right? He becomes silent because he knows that he has now been given access to some information that he's not supposed to have. That exactly what the system's trying to keep silent from him or keep quiet for him is being spoken within earshot. And if he just remains quiet, he thinks, they won't notice he's there and he might get some information. So he's gone from shouting in the face of silence to being silent in the face of some discussions. And it's only because Moody slash Barty Jr. has the magical eye that they stop talking and realize that Harry is outside the door.
1: Yeah. It's just so interesting, like, the line between an oppressive kind of silence and privacy or strategy or, yeah. you know? Because part of me is like, why not just bust into this room and scream? Fulham on the rise. yeah. But the expression you can't unring a bell, right? Like silence is often a good strategy for the short term until you have more information. But actually like, what a better audience for this news. <laughs> That Voldemort wants to murder him, then the Ministry of Magic, in theory, Mad Eye Moody, this like great orer and Dumbledore. Yeah, I'm wondering what you think is at stake there for him. Like, why not scream? Is it shame, fear, a sense of privacy?
0: I mean, I think that he. We've spoken since the since the beginning of the series. I think that Harry just does not trust grownups to tell him the full truth or to yeah protect him. Right. And, I mean, on the one hand, he does. That's why he's going to Dumbledore. But, you know, just look at the track record, like what, what Harry's been through in the first three books. He may have to take some of this fight upon his own shoulders, which is what's always happened in the, so far in the series and will continue happening. And so he's just kind of been conditioned to think that the more information I have, the better. Right. And if yeah. standing out here quietly gets me more information, information they won't give me, then I need it. And Because even the people he trusts most, he knows they're not talking to him. Right. Yeah. Dumbledore, at the end of books, always reveals he knew more than was going on. And that's happened in the first couple of books. And Sirius right, is saying, like, you're in danger. I can't say more. Yeah. Just be on the lookout. And even Moody, who he trusts at this moment, right, Moody is saying roughly analogous things like, you just need to be vigilant. There are threats around. Keep training. Keep vigilant. Like All the advice he's been given is, some of this is going to be up to you and down to you. And there's going to be a limit to how much we can tell you and how much we can help you. So I think that's why he's out there listening.
1: Yeah. I mean, and also, you know, I think we can, when in doubt, blame the parents. And by the parents, I mean Petunia and Vernon, right? Like, why on earth would you ever think that talking was a good idea? Like, just when in doubt, keep to yourself. Yeah. And unfortunately, I, I worry that as an adult, like, that's often the tacit lesson that I teach my kids yeah, it's just like, when am I accidentally a gargoyle,
0: right? Yeah, I think that's right. We were talking about this mostly from the perspective of being outside the system, but like you and I participate in systems, right? And <laughs> and I don't think Dumbledore is up there in his office thinking like, oh, I'm really glad my gargoyle is keeping out children in need, yeah. right? It's not, he's not yeah. paying attention, right? Because he, he can't hear it. He can't hear Carrie down there shouting. He's not actually, the, all those concerns have been silenced because he's too far away from the the issue to recognize what's going on.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I feel like the lesson of today's conversation is listen, listen to silences and like, because they're never silent, be less scared to break them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I see that.
1: Right. Like there's that expression that silence is violence. And what I love about that is that like it's saying silence is speech. And so when do you want to cultivate the speech of silence? And when do you want to talk as speech rather than have the speech of silence? I think we think of silence as passive. Yeah. And this conversation has made me realize how active it is.
0: Yeah. Like I said, for my story, I think it's about what you're paying attention to. Exactly. And silence can either distract attention or draw attention. And so we can use it judiciously and depending upon what we think needs attending to. Yeah. So, Vanessa, this week we are resuming a practice we haven't done in a while. We'll be doing a sacred imagination reading practice. In a sacred imagination practice, I'm going to read a passage from the chapter. And while reading the passage, I'm going to invite you and our listeners to really kind of sink into it, to try to place yourself into the narrative. It may be you place yourself as a character in the narrative. It may be that you're a fly on the wall. But just try to, like, really get into the narrative and experience it maybe in ways that are not specifically described by the text like what do you smell what else do you hear besides what is described what else do you see you know what speaks to you out of the silence of the written passage what do you notice in your own sensory experience as i read it
1: am i a fly on the wall scared of being swat or am i like i'm safe here
0: maybe you are a tiny beetle buzzing who is in fact a journalist (laughs)
1: what (laughs) i
0: mean that's the kind of insect you are i
1: am gonna be that
0: Interestingly, we're going to do a passage from the dream, because we didn't get to talk much about the dream in the episode so far, and Harry falls asleep to an insect buzzing and has this dream. Attentive readers will know that this insect is is a fairly important character in the series, but we can talk about that in forthcoming chapters. For now, I'm just going to read the beginning of Harry's dream. He was riding on the back of an eagle owl, soaring through the clear blue sky toward an old, ivy-covered house set high on a hillside. Lower and lower they flew, the wind blowing pleasantly in Harry's face until they reached a dark and broken window in the upper story of the house and entered. Now they were flying along a gloomy passageway to a room at the very end. Through the door they went, into a dark room whose windows were boarded up. Harry had left the owl's back. He was watching, now, as it fluttered across the room into a chair with its back to him. There were two dark shapes on the floor beside the chair. Both of them were stirring. One was a huge snake. The other was a man, a short, balding man, a man with watery eyes and a pointed nose. He was wheezing and sobbing on the hearth rug. You are in luck, Wormtail, said a cold, high-pitched voice from the depths of the chair in which the owl had landed. You are very fortunate indeed. Your blunder has not ruined everything. He is dead. My lord, guessed the man on the floor. My lord, I am, I am so pleased and so sorry. Nagini, said the cold voice. You are out of luck. I will not be feeding Wormtail to you, after all. But never mind, never mind. There is still Harry Potter. The snake hissed. Harry could see its tongue fluttering. Now, Wormtail, said the cold voice, perhaps one more little reminder why I will not tolerate another blunder from you. My lord, no, I beg you. The tip of a wand emerged from around the back of the chair. It was pointing at Wormtail. Crucio, said the cold voice. So Vanessa, what did you experience in that reading? Who were you?
1: I was Harry Potter.
0: Hmm.
1: Oh my God, I loved flying on that owl. It was so soft and I could just like feel the feathers and I felt so safe and I felt the wind on my face. And then I arrived at this really scary place and I was like, tiptoeing through the darkness into my own hell. And yeah, I wasn't even shocked that Voldemort was trying to kill me. I was like, yeah, okay, that's bad news, but it makes sense. You know how sometimes you get such horrible information that you actually can only take it in slowly. I feel like that was that's Harry's experience in the dream and then when he wakes up from the dream, it's like hit him fully. It just strikes me how pleasant this is until it turns unpleasant. Like, Hmm. that's what occurred to me. It's like, this is a super fun dream. This is a dream where you're flying on an owl and then it gets so bad. (laughs) And then you find out that your nemesis wants to murder you, has a plan to murder you. What about you, Matt?
0: Yeah, I think I was Harry as well. I mean, I think that's part of the, the way the dream is narrated. Like, it's asking us to really sink into Harry's character. And I guess what I was feeling was just sort of like... First of all, I you know I, I I like to try to pay attention to undescribed sensations, and I just I feel like it stinks in this room.
1: Oh yeah, right.
0: Like this room is like it smells kind of sour and musty, and exactly what you were saying about just going to this hellish place and this hellish scene of of a man being tortured and the snake and hearing myself if I'm Harry like being announced as under threat and the target of the next killing or whatever. But also just like everything in the room just feels gross like feels not gross but threatening like the kind of you know like the the smell of decay and danger and death or something like that so I noticed that and I also just like affectively like I was really brought back to the second chapter of the book when Harry wakes up from the vision slash dream of Frank Bryce being killed and like his kind of sincere terror when he wakes up like I just i felt that coming back. I think that there have been a lot of distractions from that. There was a Quidditch World Cup, there was you know, the try was a tournament there's like Sirius and there's all this stuff and he's been occasionally kind of wandered back towards that fear, boy what was going on there occasionally he remembers that's his, the pain in his scar and, and the original vision but that's kind of faded in the background for a lo- uh, or at least for the last several chapters and it just comes rushing back like the wind in his face which is pleasurable with the owl becomes like the rushing back of like the terror and the gruesomeness of this vision and it was almost an affective kind of experience as much as a sensory one that I got out of the reading.
1: Yeah. I love how sensory your experience of sacred imagination is. And I think that's right. I think that there's great wisdom in it. I love the like synesthesia of it of like, of course this house stinks. Yeah. I remember visiting like there were old people when I was little who were really fun to visit. And there were old people who weren't fun to visit and like, you hated the smells of the people who yeah. you didn't like to visit, right? Like yeah. those two things are somehow interrelated.
0: Yeah. Like whatever this house smells like, if it smelled like fresh baked bread after this dream, that's a terrifying smell to Harry. That's right? a
1: horrible <laughs> smell. Exactly.
0: You know, I at the beginning I said like, you can be a character, you can be a fly on the wall. What's interesting here is Harry is the fly on the wall, mm-hmm. right? Like, he, like in the dream, obviously Voldemort and Nagini and Wormtail don't know he's there right? Like, otherwise they'd turn to him and kill him, right? He's present in the room in this way that they speak as if he's not in the room. And I stop before this passage, but Harry starts screaming and screaming in the dream. But I imagine in the experience of the dream that screaming and screaming isn't actually heard by Nagini and Wormtail and Voldemort. They don't all look up to Harry, wherever Harry is in this scene and say, oh, you're here, let's kill you, right? Like he's screaming and screaming and trying to like alert someone and trying to like escape. But the situation just goes on. They don't acknowledge him. And that becomes kind of like, you know, again, sort of like a maybe a little foreshadowing or a picture in miniature of what's going to happen basically from here on out in the books where Harry is just trying to alert everyone, trying to tell everyone this is happening, this is happening, doing everything but screaming and occasionally actually screaming at people in authority, trying to let them know that there's this danger and everyone's ignoring him because they prefer the silence. They prefer not to hear what he's saying. Right. I got to say I like Sacred Imagination with happy passages better. This is yeah. it's rough when it's when it's terrifying.
1: Yeah, less fun.
0: Less fun. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.
1: Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This
2: week's voicemail is from Kirby. Hi, my name is Kirby and I use she, her pronouns. I was listening to some of your recent episodes about the Yule Ball and how Ron, Hermione and Harry are figuring out romantic interactions for the first time. And I wanted to give a blessing to any of the students who are aromantic or asexual, as this is probably a really difficult time for them. As Matt noted in one episode, there's an expectation that you'll develop certain feelings for other people at some point in your teenage years. This can leave many Arrow and Ace people feeling confused and like something is wrong with them, especially when they don't have the vocabulary or support to describe how they feel. This feeling that they are broken is often compounded by other people's reactions, even friends or family. Think about the scene where Ginny weaponizes Ron's lack of romantic experience against him in a fight. Uh, in a situation like the Yule Ball, a matter of normativity or the expectation that people want to and will form romantic relationships is everywhere. So I want to give a blessing to any students really feeling that pressure and some accompanying confusion or pain about their own orientation at this time. I know what that's like. It sucks. I hope you can find the words to describe yourselves and come to find acceptance and community in the future. Kirby, thank you
1: so much for that voicemail. I love whenever we like make an invisible character visible and I feel like it's such a good practice for us in our own lives. And, you know, we just we just shouldn't assume that our narrative is a widely experienced narrative or that a dominant narrative is actually, you know, the most experienced narrative. There's There's always an agenda. I sound like Moody, but there is. So thank you for pointing that out to us.
0: Yeah, thanks, Kirby. Uh, You know, we've been discussing in this episode how silence is actually about who you pay attention to and how you pay attention. And I'm glad you have drawn our attention to the ways even, you know, what counts as quote unquote normal or normative among teenage relations bears out as oppressive for lots of folks. And that, and you're calling. Attention to the kind of the pressures and expectations of teen socializing is really important and really welcome, and I'm grateful for it. So thank you.
1: It is now time for us to remember members of our community who've been loved and lost. Zoe Fortier, who's 19, a student, daughter, and friend. Brian Fisher, who was a good father and a kind soul. Mike Spear, who was 80, a grandfather, father and sailor. Robert, who was 80 and a grandfather who was full of love. Roisin, who was 45, a friend, sister and talented flautist. May their memories be a blessing to us all. Now, it's time to offer blessings for characters. Who would you like to bless this week?
0: I'd like to bless Bertha Jorkins. I mean, Bertha has been missing, and actually we as readers know, dead for a long time. And her her disappearance is still being treated really cavalierly among the people who should be paying attention to her right like even now even after everything's getting weirder like this missing person situation is still attributed to her fault they're like oh boy Bertha's the one that if it was gonna be anybody it was gonna be bertha like it's just especially since we know what happened it's i think i've blessed her before for this but it just resurfaces in this chapter and i just wanted to name it again and bless bertha no one's paying attention to her absence no one's listening to her silence to the fact that she's not there and if they had been paying better attention, people in charge might have gotten a bigger jump on Voldemort and his resurgence.
1: Yeah. I would like to bless Ron. He's being a really loving brother in this chapter. You know, the twins are bullying him to some extent in a defensive, completely like understandable way. They're saying, hey, this is none of your business, right? As Ron is asking about this letter that they're sending to Ludo Bagman And Ron says, it is my business. And what he doesn't say is, it's my business because I love you. (laughs) But I think that that's what is happening here is like, if you're going to get yourself in trouble, that actually is my business because I care about you and that's going to impact me. And I think that that's part of loving someone is like saying to them like, the decisions you make are my business. So, yeah, I just want to bless Ron for being not a great presentation of a loving brother, but being a genuinely loving brother.
0: Next week, we'll be reading Book Four, Chapter 30, The Pensive, through the theme of comfort.
1: Ooh, I love comfort. I'm
0: going to put on my slippers and sit in the soft couch and have you tell a story.
1: <laughs> okay, can't wait. <laughs> Everybody, we just have one reminder before we give our thanks, which is a reminder that our summer camp is happening, and it is happening soon, and over 130 of you are coming, but the more, the merrier, quite literally, so please find out more at NotSorryWorks.com. This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our engineer is Malika Gumpankum. We are edited and produced by AJ Uramas. Our music is by Evan Paizow and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by ACAST. Thank you so much to Kirby for her voicemail this week. To Lara Glass, Margaret H. Willison, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Casperter Kyle, Stephanie Palsall, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones. I love that I act like I can't count Chapter us 29. in. AJT, you want to count
2: us in? I can't say three, two, one, go by myself.